If you'd like to grab that pew Bible in front of you and open to page 948, that is where Romans 14 will begin. Oh, and I set aside something that I don't want to lose. That's not the way to keep their attention when you start out. There you go. Also, if you want to put a note at page 958, that's 1 Corinthians 10. We'll be turning there at a certain point today as well. But I want to start with a, a parable of sorts. I think you'll see where this is going pretty easily, but I'm also going to be as careful as I can be as I do it. I want you to imagine a, a world like ours. It's our world, but it's different. And I want you to imagine in this world that thanks to the modern miracle of science, there is developed a shot that can help you live for another hundred years. They develop a medicine that you inject into your body that will mess with your body and that is change your body, but it will do so in a way that will help you live another hundred years. But it might not, and it might kill you sooner. And then imagine that in your church that you go to where you all believe that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Some people decide to take this shot, and some people don't. And the pastor won't say anything about it because they didn't use aborted baby the shot. This is strictly made out of something like, I don't know, pomegranates, okay? Is it right or wrong to take the shot if it might make you live forever or if it might kill you? And the answer is, it's not the right question. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 14. That Christians can disagree about their risk. Christians can disagree about what they do when God has neither commanded it nor forbidden it. I actually believe, I don't know if a lot of people agree with me, but I believe that certain foods are better for you than other foods. I believe if you eat a certain way, it will improve your health. And I believe if you eat another way, it will damage your health. And you're like, yes, pastor, I believe it. I, no, not like, not like me, you don't. Because I got it upside down and we'll leave that for another day. Because it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with our religion, how long we live or how soon we die. Where else does this hit the road? What happens when you reach that ripe old age of 75 and you have that cancer that's in stage two, but maybe you can get through it? What happens when they say, you know, it's going to be like two years and your hair is going to fall out and your body's going to feel like crap. You really won't be able to see people. You're immunocompromised, or, you know, but you got to do it. You don't have to do it. It's okay to die. If there is a lie that is the most important lie to unearth and destroy from the last three years of everything... It is the lie that you need to be safe. That's the lie. You don't have to be safe. Does that mean you should be in danger? I didn't say that. I said that you as a Christian have the freedom to be in danger. 
Forget American rights. As a Christian, you have the freedom to be in danger, especially if you believe it will be for somebody else's good. Think policeman. Think fireman. These days, think somebody who speaks aloud at a board meeting at the public school about the value of marriage. You have the right to be in danger as a Christian. More than that, you have the confidence to know that should they take your life, goods, fame, child, or wife, you know where I'm going with that? Though these all be gone, the battle still is won. What remains? The kingdom. The kingdom, because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That is as sure and certain as the sun rising tomorrow. In fact, the sun may not rise tomorrow if he comes again, but he will. He will be, and he will reign, and we will rise. And what Paul, thank you, what Paul wants us to get at here then is when someone comes along and tries to distract us from that clarifying, harmonizing, transformative message with some story about how this life could be better here now, the last thing we want to do is kick each other out of church over that other thing. The last thing we want to do is get religious about things that are not our religion. Now, I can't tell you whether or not if you refuse to have a shot that would make you live in 100 years but maybe kill you, whether or not your family would then no longer invite you over for dinner. I can't tell you what people would do, but I can tell you that that's happened in the last three years with all sorts of different things, and that shows you how religious we've gotten about this stuff. So Paul's text doesn't quite apply in some ways other than to say to us, stop it. Stop being religious about politics, even though you need to be involved in politics. Stop being religious about good food, even though you really should eat good food. Let's get to the text. Paul starts, page 948, again, chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. There's two edges to this. They both have to do with recognizing that some people are new to the faith, or maybe they've been Christians their whole life, but their conscience is still tied to their works. That's what it means to be weak in faith. It means you're still judging yourself by what you do, rather than by what Christ has said about you. That person who is weak in the faith is to be welcomed into the church. The person who's not so sure if Jesus loves them or doesn't know if God can forgive that sin. You are wanted by Jesus and are to be welcomed by we who know that he wants us. And I'll confess, when it comes to this, my faith is weak. I judge myself and shame myself with my works all the time. And so what he's getting at here is a recognition that all of us need this. Yes? But what are we to be welcomed for? We're to be welcomed into grace, not to quarrel over opinions. That goes both ways. It means when someone who is weak in the faith comes in and says, you know, I'm, I, I love Jesus. I love that he's risen from the dead, but I'm not so sure about that. Okay, well, we don't argue about that here. We don't argue over the definition of marriage. You're not welcome here to disagree with what God has surely said. And conversely, when that person who is weak in the faith says something like, well, I'm a vegan and I think killing animals is wrong, we say to them, well, okay, you want to be a vegan? Go ahead and be a vegan. We don't try to push on them our own idea, 
that you can eat animals if they don't want to listen to it. Now, that's not to say that when you're having conversations with each other, you can't find disagreements with each other and talk about it. In fact, the idea is not that we would avoid the disagreements, but that we would talk about them as if we're brothers. As if it's okay to disagree about what you eat. Because it's just not that big a deal. And frankly, given the state of the standard American diet today and the, the levels of poison we've been eating for 40 and 50 years, I mean, it proves the point. It's really not that big a deal. We can live on less than good food. You know, <laughs> what I saw that, uh, I saw a meme the other day where they ranked um, frosted, frosted mini-wheats were ranked above an egg in terms of value. <laughs> okay, <laughs> if you want to believe it, go for it. Yeah. But then this is it. We're not. We're here to argue. We can disagree. We're not here to argue. All right. So then here's where it gets very specific. He says in verse two, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And here's where it gets a bit confusing because eating only vegetables was not really a very standard thing in the ancient world anywhere. There were cults that required vegetarianism, but they were, even then, they were cults. Huh? This wasn't kind of the norm going on. Yeah. Um, so what is he talking about? That's a tough one to pin down here. Because remember, he is writing to the church in Rome. This is a mixed congregation of Jewish and Gentile Christians. Now, everywhere else that this topic comes up, it has everything to do with the Old Testament ritual laws and following the Old Testament food laws, with the exception that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, it has to do with whether or not you can eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. In both cases, it has not to do with vegetarianism as some sort of nutritional gambit, but instead with food being used as a form of worship. So again, in 1 Corinthians, if you go to somebody's house and they give you a licorice stick and they say, I offered it to Baal, can I eat it? The answer is no. For you? No, you know, it's just a licorice stick. But for the guy who worships Baal, you don't want to confirm him in that. That's what this is really about at the root here again. How do we engage with people who treat religion, excuse me, who treat food like religion officially and publicly? Now, today it's a little more hidden than that. But um, notice here, though, it's going to get back to this in a moment. Uh, one person believes he may eat anything. Paul's going to say, you heard it read, all things are clean. All foods are clean. Does he mean you can drink gasoline? I mean, you could, but no, he, he really doesn't mean that. What he means is that there's no food that separates you from Jesus, right? It doesn't mean it's all healthy, and that's not even the point. The point's not health, and that's what we have to, to rip the health argument out of your head to understand this text. Okay, it's about religious practice, okay? So then, what he says is, what, one person, he thinks he can eat pig, and the other person who grew up a Jew but became a Christian just can't stomach the pig. That's understandable. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Huh? So you, you can decide that you're not going to eat something because, you know, you grew up being taught not to eat it. 
Just don't judge anybody based on that. Let them eat it. Who are you, verse 4, to pass judgment on the servant of another? The substance here is that all of us belong to Jesus. All of us. Who's going to be our judge? Jesus is going to be our judge. And as you know, that's a good thing. He's already declared you innocent in the court of law. He comes to set you free. So why judge someone else just because they won't eat pork? What a strange thing to do. And of course, that is strange to us, but we'll judge people for all sorts of other stuff. And that's where this has to apply on a lot more levels than just food. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he, that is you, will be upheld for the Lord, that is Jesus, is able to make him, that's you, stand. Faith in Christ is faith in his word. And those things that are neither commanded nor forbidden do not separate you from him, even if you're dead wrong and it kills you. We got to believe that again as a people. Hmm? Verse 5, it gets into worship again on days, right? One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, unquestionably, that has to do with Sabbath worship. That has to do with Jewish Christians and Jewish legalizers who believed and or taught that they had to still keep the Sabbath just like they had to still be circumcised even though they'd become Christians. And it's very clear that the early church said, look, you want to keep the Sabbath? Keep the Sabbath. The problem is when you say you have to keep the Sabbath. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you're of the devil. Which, by the way, is what the Seventh-day Adventist Church officially teaches. That to worship on Sunday is the mark of the beast. That's why they're ignoring this law, or this law, this phrase, right? It's fine if you want to think one day is better than another. You just can't make everyone else think that. Have you heard the story of Christmas? Where December the 25th come from? You'll get some people in an atheist forum online that'll try to tell you it's like the uh, Invictus soul, the unconquerable son of the Roman Empire. It's poppycock. What it came from is an early church father who wanted to figure out when Jesus was born. And so he did some math. And he, he knew from the moon calendar when Jesus died. And Jesus died on March 25th of the year that Jesus died. Now, of course, we don't know as much of this as we think we do. But he knew. He figured it out. Okay. So March 25th was the day that Jesus died. And he also knew, as everybody knows, that a prophet dies on the day he is conceived. Like you knew that, right? I could tell you in grade school, right? Yeah, no, but, but that's what he thought. That's what he believed. And so since he was conceived on the day he died, March 25th, and since pregnancies are always exactly nine months, December 25th is obviously the day Jesus was born. And boom, we celebrate the Christmas on December the 25th. Could we do it on the 26th? Yes, we could. Now, would it be wise to move Christmas? Like, would that help? Oh, not really, right? Why do that? So this doesn't mean that there isn't a wisdom to when you meet together. It doesn't mean that as a congregation, you cannot agree with each other that 8 and 10 o'clock on Sunday morning is better than 2 a.m. on Monday night. 
You, you can agree with that. What you can't do is say that if there's a church that wants to meet at 2 a.m. on Sunday night, they're not Christians. You can't do that. Which is why, again, when the Seventh-day Adventists condemn the rest of Christianity for not keeping the Sabbath, they put themselves outside of Christianity on that act alone by condemning us. Uh, by the way, since we're on the topic of food and the Seventh-day Adventists, I do need to do a public service announcement. It's important for you to know that Seventh-day Adventism also does teach vegetarianism as a requirement for Christianity. You cannot eat meat because eating meat leads to sexual immorality. And so in order to stop sexual immorality from plaguing the people, we must remove meat from the diet. These are the words of the prophetess Ellen White. She is the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And she said that they would, she would never eat anything that had a face or a mother. Now, to this day, you'll find atheist vegans who will say that. They don't even know they're Seventh-day Adventists. But they are. They're following a false prophetess who then had a follower whose last name was Kellogg. And he began an industry to sell foods to replace meat. And to this day, the Seventh-day Adventist Church also promotes global lobbyist organizations. They pour tons of money into advising global governments, local governments, national governments on nutrition policy. You follow me here. It's not accidental that the push for vegetarianism is what it is. It's the result of a cult from the 1800s getting wise and not telling you what they're doing. It's worth knowing about before you just believe whatever you're told because, well, they sold it to you. Again, you want to eat vegetables, eat vegetables. You want to eat pork rinds, eat pork rinds. Right? That's the issue is when someone tells you you have to or you can't. That's the problem. Okay. So one day esteemed as another. Uh, each one, end of verse 5, should be fully convinced in his own mind. Right? So if you're going to make a decision about something that the Bible doesn't say anything about, like, that's okay. Be convinced. Right? Just don't hold it as the same level as the Christian religion, as orthodoxy. So verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. There I can only circle around and say it again, that the real lie was the lie of, you better be safe. Don't go outside, you might die. Don't do anything that might get you hurt. Christians should never have swallowed that pill. It's one thing if you're like, you know what, I'm immunocompromised, I'm not going to do this. But to impose it upon everybody else, that is a radical kind of fear that has no place in our hearts. It's not about wanting to rebel or push back against tears. It's about believing that you are in Christ's hands and that if you should die, it's all good. It's going to be fine. He is risen. So then, verse 10, why pass judgment on your brother? I mean, I don't know. I don't want to 
get in trouble on YouTube again, but so we still have members here who will wear a face covering when they go out in public. Currently, you may not have heard this, but there are new proclamations about new strains of certain things that are going to encourage places to force face coverings on them again, most notably this week, San Diego school system, um, Australia, New Zealand. Meanwhile, uh, the World Health Organization has declared monkeypox to be a global pandemic, just, just so you know. Um, here's the thing. If you think that wearing a face covering isn't good for your health, don't judge people who do wear them. That's, that's the meat here, really. So you see someone who doesn't know what you know. Love them. Cherish them. Care for them. Now, when they say, now, pastor, you have to wear one. No. No, I'm going to be fully convinced in my own mind. But I will respect yours as well. Right? I, so don't pass judgment on your brother. You, why do you despise your brother over food, over clothing? That's not what we're here for. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Right? That story isn't stopping no matter what else happens. The end of the world is upon us. The final ages have come. Christ has taken charge of all things and we will walk from this moment to the day where we shall bow before his throne in glorious righteousness and everlasting light. Let that be your moniker and your name and your heart and your courage. Let that be what keeps you safe as you walk outside your door and you drive on your street. Because each of us, it says, verse 12, will give an account of himself to God. So indeed, if someone doesn't believe, that day will show it. But in the meantime, there are those who are simply weak. And I mean, you got to know this. There's those out there right now who are making lots of money selling you stuff you don't know that might be bad for you. On all sorts of issues. You don't even know which one I was thinking about as I said that. There's more than one issue. People out there making lots of money selling you stuff that's bad for you. Judgment day's coming. God will God'll know. He'll take care of it. But there's also people out there that are just scared and would love to know about a God like the one who has you. Yeah. So know that you're going to give an account to God of being a Christian, of being baptized into his name, and walk with confidence again striving to see the other. Verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, that is talking about in the church, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Now here's where it gets a little sticky-wickety. He's going to mention wine here in a moment. So I want to use wine as the example rather than the face coverings as an example, although they could both go this way. Okay? Um, the idea of the stumbling block. It is our goal as Christians not to make a brother Christian fall out of the faith by what we do. That doesn't mean that when they, in their immaturity, attempt to make us do something that is wrong, 
we have to do it. The alcohol example is a very good example where the teetotaling movement, that is Christians who believe that alcohol itself is bad and they took the alcohol out of the Lord's Supper against the Lord's word, then come along and say to you, I'm the weaker brother, so you should never drink alcohol so that you don't offend me. See, that's not what the text says. The text says that if they think someone shouldn't drink alcohol, but the word hasn't said so, they should put up with it. So what happens when someone comes to you and says to you, you need to do this to not offend me? This calls for wisdom. But if they've actually gone that far as to say that, the thing is, they're the one giving offense already. And it's not your task to submit to them as if they have the right to bind your conscience. The whole text is about how we should not bind each other's consciences. We should be free and strive to bear with each other. This is why, again, if someone says to me, do this thing because it'll make me safe. And I'm pretty convinced it won't make you safe. It might make all of us more in danger. It certainly won't be good for me at all. Then I'm not going to let you strong arm me with guilt and bind my conscience by things God has not said. You follow? Yeah. Again, it calls for wisdom. And that doesn't mean there isn't a time and a place to do something that you know is useless because someone else is weak and needs help. But when they're the one telling you, do that or I'm offended, they're not the weak one. They're not weak at all. Um, If anything, they're they're high-handed at that point. It is our goal then not to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. What we want to do is not trip each other up. We want to build each other up, not trip each other up. Paul says, verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. We already kind of got through this, right? Nothing is unclean in itself. No food spiritually will kill you. Could it kill you physically? Yes, but it's not going to kill you spiritually. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If I got a Jewish neighbor and I take some bacon and I wag it in his face, that ain't cool. That ain't cool at all. And that's what he's saying. Don't do that. You're, like, you're, you're toying with the man's heart. Why would you do such a thing? Right? It doesn't mean you don't eat bacon in your house. You're free to do that. Huh? If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. That's the goal is to walk in love, to see your brother for who he really is. And again, your Jewish neighbor is not your brother, but your Christian neighbor at church sure is. So we want to walk in love so as not to destroy the one for whom Christ died. The last thing we want to do is have people who cannot come to St. Paul Lutheran Church because of their medical decisions, because of their nutrition decisions. That's the last thing we want. We don't want to destroy people because we think we're right about this or that. We we could talk about the Second Amendment. We could even maybe talk about critical race theory, although that gets pretty religious pretty fast. The trick is, again, How much can we all put down our opinion about those things in order to join what we know will bind us together with certainty, which is these words, these very words, right? Now, verse 16 is key in all of this. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. You are supposed to have your own opinion. You are supposed to be able to talk about it with your brother. You're just not supposed to judge each other over it. I mean, Packers, Bears, right? It's, 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 It's kind of a thing, 
but it's a joke the whole time. But, but you see the point there, I hope. Like you should be able to both wear your jerseys, Packers-Bears, watch the Packers-Bear game, sit beside each other, and like rejoice no matter who wins. Christians should be able to do that. Yeah? And about much more important things than, than sports. For the kingdom of God, that's us, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, someone might come along and say something as silly as this. Oh, look, Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Therefore, the Lord's Supper isn't part of church. Okay, you're so far out in left field with this text, I don't even know what to do with you. He's talking about eating and drinking meat bought at the marketplace. He's talking about drinking wine that's been poured out as libations to idols. He's talking about Sabbath worship and Old Testament codes. He's not denying what our Lord said on the night he was betrayed. Insanity to use this text that way. But to be sure, what our Lord said on the night he was betrayed is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because if the Lord's Supper is not there to feed your knowledge that Christ has made you righteous and instead is some work you're doing to earn more glory and get out of purgatory sooner, well, you're confused. Huh? The Lord's Supper is there to declare you righteous yet again, to give you the comfort and joy in the knowledge that God has you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he's bound you to himself, body and blood. And such confidence again is peace. In the conscience. Whoever thus, verse 18, serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Right? So get that. Yeah? You have your opinion about nutrition. You hold to it. You're willing to defend it. And you're willing to let someone else think you're just dead wrong. God approves. And other people of goodwill will also approve. They're going to say, what a reasonable guy. He actually is he's willing to learn that he might be wrong. He's willing to consider new information and not get all immediately emotional about it. And again, that's the trick. You want to know how someone is doing something as a religion? When you bring it up, they get emotional. They get real emotional. They just go right at you. You can see right there how much politics has become a religion these days. Why increasingly you can't avoid thinking about it. Yeah. I mentioned this last service, you know, when you have senators like Elizabeth Warren saying that pro-life pregnancy centers are deceiving women into keeping children they do not want and that they need to be shut down, I don't think she's just talking politics. She's talking religion and an evil one at that. That said, the goal is to be reasonable with what you believe, yes, toward others. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. If you can have a conversation about the, the bears and the packers and not get angry, great, do it. If it's going to make you angry, don't talk about it. Let it go. Walk away. You know, that, that's all right too. Pursue the things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, however, for the sake of food, and here you can fill in any of the topics I brought up today, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Don't let arguments about things the Bible doesn't talk about destroy the church. Don't let it divide us. Huh? Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. 
It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And again, he's not talking about nutrition. He's talking about eating meat and not worrying about where it was bought from. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians here briefly in a moment here to try to dig into that. But it's just so essential here, right? So essential. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You want to have a clean conscience. Yeah. You will have a clean conscience in the scriptures. It will give it to you. Don't let other things become a matter of conscience. And not in that way. Whoever doubts, he says, is condemned if he eats. Because his eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that's, that's a pretty deep idea. I mean, we're at the back end of the book of Romans. And the whole book is about how you are declared righteous by God through faith in his word. Huh? And so faith is the thing that God desires from us. Remember, faith is trust. Faith is not a power that you have within you. It is a trust in the power of God speaking to you. He says it. You believe it. The whole of Christianity is a restoration of man from unbelief to faith. And so if in your immaturity, your confusion, the fact that people have lied to you, the fact that it just hasn't been studied, you happen to be wrong about something, but your conscience is tied up to it, that ties your faith in there as well. And that's how you can, by attributing two things like food and politics and whatnot, religious ramifications, you can run yourself right out of Christianity. And that's the threat again. So let's not try to do that, right? Let's try to keep each other in the thing that is established and true forever. All right, getting near the end here, go to page 958, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 and 24 here. We won't go through the whole thing. 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, the same topic is brought up. He goes on a big, long train about it, breaks it up to talk about the Lord's Supper for a moment, comes back again in chapter 10. Again, verses 23 and 24 are just so excellent for summarizing this. I'm going to take them one at a time here. First verse 23, all things are lawful. Just let that sink in. You are free. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Why should a Christian young man or woman not commit adultery? Is it so that they can go to heaven? Is it so that God will think they're righteous? Or is it because it hurts it's bad. It destroys. It's not helpful. Do you see the shift that has occurred from us? We're no longer under the law. All things are lawful, but because now we're under grace, we have the freedom to say that, oh, I might be allowed to do that, but if I do it, it will do great evil to others, so it's not helpful. Evil is not helpful. And so now it again calls for wisdom. Of course, where God has said, you shall not do this, he clearly thinks it's not helpful. Yeah, But where he has not said anything, we have to assess that. And one of the ways you can assess is, does it destroy your brother? Does it break him? Does it tear him down? Yeah. 
All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So then verse 24, let not let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Yeah, like that's that's the goal is to renew your mind to see that whenever you're with your neighbor, the goal is the good of your neighbor. And that's whoever's near you. That's what neighbor means, the one who's near you at any given time. Does that mean when you're at home by yourself, you have to do what your neighbor says? No, doesn't mean that. It's not a command to submit to tyrants. It's not a command to sell yourself into slavery for free. It's a command to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's just what's always been said, is it not? Yeah. Now let's look at verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So let's go back to our opening little parable, okay? So they, they come up with the shot that's going to give you 100 years of life. It might kill you. Take it and die. Jesus be praised. Take it and live. Jesus be praised. Don't want to take it. Jesus be praised. Now, I'm not going to say that what we're facing right now is quite that easy. Like I said, the lies that are out there right now have managed to make all manner of things incredibly religious. And when they come along and they tell you, you have to do this or you're not loving, the game has changed a little bit. Especially when they say, you have to do this because we're your king and, and they're not. The game has changed a little bit. Nonetheless, the wisdom of Romans 14 can help us navigate this path by seeing that our end goal is always to build up in the scriptures and what we know to be true. And any other wisdom that exists in the world, it is to feed that, not to tear that down. And the moment it begins to tear it down, that's when we stop and we suffer instead. We would rather be wronged than destroy the church of Christ. Yes. In the name of Jesus.